Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium, and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Bibliophiles. We're coming to you today with another of the great questions that winds its way through Western literature. And I want to introduce the crew to you today. I'm your host, Ian, joined as ever by my father, Adam. Hello. My mother, Missy. Hi. Sister Megan. Hey. I made you sound like a nun. Sister Megan. You did. I'm not Sister Megan that way. Sister Sister Megan. Megan. (laughs) And my wife, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Little slap happy. Little slap happy. Mm -hmm. Feeling holy. Holier now. Well, we can't. Holier now. Now that I have. Sister Mary Megan's doing great. (laughs) Sister Mary Megan is doing just fine. Okay, so here's here's what I've been chewing on. Here's what I've been thinking on. I think you should all rapid fire. You don't get time to consider this. You have to just, boom, answer. And it, I want it to be a cacophony. Okay, all of you just answer at the same time. I'll do a countdown. I'm going to ask the question, and I'll do a countdown. And you're going to get five seconds, and then, boom, we're all going to answer at the same time. Okay? Okay. The question is this. What is the greatest love story ever told? The Bible is off limits, as <laughs> is The Notebook, Titanic, and Princess Bride. Five. Four, three, two, one, go. Gary and Emma. So love. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did we all say something different? That was exactly what I wanted. Okay, now repeat your answer, Dad. Anna Karenina. Oh, man. Oh, that's good. Great Haven't choice. read it. Great choice. Okay, Megan? Great. I said till we have faces. Till we have faces. Mm. Oh, yes. Ooh, also a wrong. great choice. Not your typical ones. love story, though. Well, we'll get to that in a second. We'll go. Not we'll go. Love. We're going to go there to that very question. I was hoping this would happen. Okay, mom. I said, I said, redeeming love. <laughs> you mean the Jeanette oh, Oak book? No, it's you not mean Jeanette the Oak. bodice river? Rivers? Rivers. It, it's a retelling of the Hosea and Gomer story. Oh, there no. are heaving bodices and prostitutes in that story. Did you know that that's coming out as a film? It is. Yeah, is it, it really oh, ill-advised, ladies and gentlemen. Well, Megan what and I no, watched it. Either. You watched, you watched it? it? Well, no, we watched no. the preview together, and the whole time Megan was leaning over, going, "No, no, 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 no!" no, no, no. <laughs> oh, that's too bad because the, the story itself was gripping because of the fact that it was a retelling of the Hosea Gomer love story. Wow. Okay. Well, that that does kind of fall afoul, I think, of the the Bible is off limits, which is what I started with. I should have no, said, said Hosea and Gomer love. are off. Mom mm. finds a loophole. Mm. I said, Francine, what is, how is it that you find a loophole? <laughs> She's like, you know what? Emily, the Bible, what was your it's still the Bible. I said Gary and Miranda because I'm feeling insubstantial today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah plug. Pretty Gary. soon, pretty soon, Miranda's going to be all here. Like, There's this little podcast in the United States, and they love you. Honestly, they think that is my whole goal. Miranda, <laughs> <laughs> it's also my life's goal. <laughs> oh, that would make well, me very happy. What well, did you question, say, Ian? Uh, I didn't say. I'm the guy running the show. Ha! I didn't have to say. Although... Oh, no. That's an out. No way. It's totally an out. And I, you have I five seconds, Ian. Five, no. four, four, three, three two, 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 one. The Lord of the Rings. That's not a love story. That's your answer to everything. How about the Silmarillion? It's a little bit like saying the Bible. Anyways. Okay, so the question, the real question on the table today is related, but not the same. The question is, what is love? And I think it needs a little bit of definition, given that there are aspects of love that we took up in our previous episodes, specifically the one on friendship. Oh, um, my God. Right. And I, I mean by the question, what is love today? What is, quote unquote, true love in our common wow. cultural parlance, right? True, wow. <laughs> what is What is a good, deep, quote, real romantic love? So... Not to beat a dead horse, but Frodo and Sam share a real and true and deep love, 
but it's not romantic. But isn't right? that friendship? That's like, friendship. Like exactly. we did in the last episode. That's the point I'm trying to make is that is that answers that tend toward the friendship are illegitimate answers to the question today. We're talking about romantic love. So so Lewis argues for four loves in his book of that name. Storgi, which is empathetic love. <laughs> Philia, which is friendship. Eros, which is romantic love. And agape, or agape, as he says agape. himself. <laughs> Unconditional or divine love. So in the, in the case of today's conversation, we're focused on some admixture of the latter two categories, eros and agape. That's too bad, because right? I stopped listening after you said storgy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great word, isn't it? So, okay, but here's, there's this quotation that is from The Four Loves that is just Lewis, and we may as well start with some Lewis, because it's wonderful. So he says, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Strong, strong words. Very strong, strong words from Lewis. So hard to follow C.S. Lewis. Yeah, well, I'm going to make you all do it, I guess. <laughs> but so, okay, so how do we see this issue working its way through, through literature broadly, through the Greek canon? Um, start with some some modern examples, maybe. A couple of you are in the hot seat, right? Who wants to fight for, for the first volley? Well, I'm in the hot seat today, but I'm not fighting for the first volley. If you'd like you, to go first. You can take it. There's no war. Okay. You want me to go first? Yeah. Start, okay. start us off. All right. I'll go first. I'm not starting with a modern book, though. I'm starting with a TV series today. Ooh, look at you. So, Do it. Yeah. I've been, I've been listening or watching this TV series called Modern Love. Are you guys familiar with that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Fa- in yeah. Fact, I watched I season one. I think there's more seasons, though. I liked season one, too. And I started season two. And um, it's this series we, of vignettes. We bailed that are... on season two in like episode three or something. Yeah, I bailed after episode maybe four or five. But anyway, it's, it's this series of vignettes. And they're essentially studies of the nature of love. And it runs the gamut, discussing romantic love, but also family love, um, friendship, for example, one one particular episode was about uh, a guy and a girl that meet in a bar, and he's a lot older than she is. Um, in fact, he's old enough to be her father. And so during the course of the evening, a lot of father issues come up, and it's about the significance of the father-daughter relationships and mm-hmm. all kinds of love um, that they're looking at in this in this uh, series. And I've really appreciated the window that it provides into current cultural ideas of love. And like you said, Ian, some of them are better than others, and I certainly right. would not recommend them unequivocally. This is a disclaimer. Yeah, go but with your I eyes have, open. Yeah, right. absolutely, and don't watch them with your kids. But I have found some of them to be studies of something other than Hollywood romantic love with its cute meets and all of its torrid passion, right? <laughs> I've found that at least some of them, at least some of them touch on something real. Mm. And that, I have to say, was very unexpected from Hollywood, I mean, it made me think, um, don't you think it's interesting that when you look across cultures and time, you find a general consensus about the idea of love, if only in terms of its significance? Right. Everybody thinks it's important. Everybody thinks it's important. Isn't it strange how timeless the human search for real love is? I, I kind of couldn't get over it thinking about this. So anyway, um, that that's my that was my segue into the idea of love. But as I thought about it and and tried to answer the question, what is a good romantic love? Twentieth century novel novel. Well, it's an autobiography, not a novel, but it reads like a novel. It's by Sheldon Van Aken. It's called A Severe Mercy. It was published by Harper One in nineteen seventy seven. Uh, won the National Book Award in 1980 and the Gold Medallion Award in 1977. And as I said, it's the autobiographical story of Sheldon's love story with his wife, Jean Davis, that he called Davy. And the story goes that they met early in their lives before either of them came to any kind of faith in Christ, and they fell into friendship and then love almost immediately. 
they were completely taken with each other. And the love that they shared was absorbing and passionate and devouring. He, he describes um, their love as kind of a pagan love. They pledged to one another never to put anything before their love for each other. Theirs was like a world of two. They worshipped their love, like I said, with this kind of pagan ferocity. And this went pretty well for a time. They sailed around the world in a boat that was termed, I think he, they called it the Grey Goose, because gray goose, uh, a Grey Goose mates for life. Um, so it, it, they were completely fixated on their love. And they enjoyed one another's company. They were wonderful friends. Uh, and eventually they, they went to Oxford and to graduate school together. And while they were there, they came into contact with the works of C.S. Lewis, lo and behold, and they began this correspondence and then a friendship with him. They're friends of Lewis's? They became friends of Lewis's um, wow. through correspondence. You know, Lewis answered letters. I, I think it's amazing how many letters he answered uh, throughout the course of his career. And no letter was too small, no person too unimportant. No, how does that go? We meet no... Um, ordinary ordinary people. people. We meet no ordinary people. And he really lived that out in terms of responding to the people that uh, wrote to him. And this was one of those couples. And they were not Christians, um, but they were intrigued by the idea of Christianity and decided that they were going to find out about this. And through their relationship with him, they became Christians. Now, Davy became a Christian first, and her, her husband, Sheldon, kind of came along behind her in time. But the, the introduction of God into, the, into this equation, into their love story, posed just a little bit of a problem for their vow to never put anything before their love for oh, one yeah. another. <laughs> because suddenly, like waters you know, God had this claim on Davy, and Sheldon didn't like it. He envied God and was jealous. And this jealousy only intensified when Davy discovered that she was sick. Now, I don't, I don't want to give the story away. It's too good. But suffice it to say that the romantic love story becomes a divine story, a story of divine love. And that friendship lies, um, that friendship love lies at the heart of all of the loves in the story. So though the story follows this sort of divine love triangle, the triangulation between these various loves, romantic and spiritual and friendship love, actually holds. They're connected, interrelated each to each in this kind of natural dependency. Since God is love, knowledge of his love and submission to it is foundational to all other kinds of love, uh, to friendship, to marriage. And in fact, the, the love of God feeds and supports the romantic love of marriage that Paul suggests is both subordinate to divine love and an image of it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think that it's this, it's the paradox of the, the love triangle, you know, and the, significance that it, it, the insight that it allows, that it, it brings to the study of the nature of love and where it comes from and what supports it. Anyway, um, Sh this is, okay, spoiler alert. I'm going to say spoiler alert. Okay. Okay. Spoiler alert. Okay. Sheldon Van Aken actually says in the book, this is a quote, it was death, Davy's death, that was the severe mercy. This is not a concept that will have an immediate appeal to everyone. Not in a society that celebrates both romantic and sexual love as the great goods and hates death as the great evil. And indeed, apart from death as a release from frightful pain for those already doomed, how can death be called a mercy? Mm -hmm. So Van Aken explores an answer to just such a question that pivots on the, the sacrificial and satisfying love of Jesus, whose suffering provided mercy for all of us. Only his love could, as Sheldon says, breach the shining barrier, barrier, that shining barrier of pagan selfishness and idolatry. Wow. Yeah, I, you, you guys, you've got to read it. If you haven't read it, you've got to read it. And it's one of those books that um, somebody told me about it. I think that I, it might have come to me even as a gift. And it sat on my table for such a long time because I just thought, I don't want to read about somebody falling in love and then their their spouse dying. That sounds terrible. You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm having that thought right now. But I was wrong about that. The book was um, profoundly moving and true. And the fact that it was a, an autobiographical account um, added to the gravitas of the story. But it was beautiful. It was a beautiful story that kind of reminded me of another autobiographical romance, that that of the medieval author Dante and Beatrice. 
and a lot of other books that have been written in that tradition. Are you going you, for you a, a third? Because you did you did Modern Love and A Severe Mercy. Are we also doing Dante? Because let's freaking go, Mom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- these are totally Here's, related. I actually, Hang on. Right, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. wait, but before you jump in, yeah, and I'll let you, I will let you do it. I will totally let you do it. But before you jump in on that, w- that reminded me of, is it? I might be getting the titles mixed up. Is it the end of the affair? Ooh, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where the where the love of God Intercedes, actually yeah. breaks up a human romance? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Same we did idea, that in book right? club, I think. Yes. Exactly yeah. the same idea. Okay. So we're all, okay, we're on the same wavelength. Okay, so what about Dante and Beatrice? Except in that particular story, in that story it was a it was a illegitimate affair. Yes. An extra marriage. And this one's affair. very well, legitimate. Marriage. Well, this yeah. one was a marriage. You know, it was a marriage. I mean, there actually, when I was reading this book, there was a moment when I thought, okay, so the shining barrier, um, their love keeps the world out. It keeps them in. It creates a world of two. Yeah, yeah. So, right. Yeah, this is all correct. This is marriage, right? And um, he had me. He got me (laughs) in that moment. He suckered you. He began to, to question that. Is it? Is that true? Is that right? And in some ways, yes. You know, sexually, absolutely. But in other ways, maybe that's not what love is really for. Maybe that's not even what marital love is really for. Maybe marital love is designed not just to make a world of two, but to create a family that welcomes people in, you know? Right. Not only your own children, which certainly disrupts that world of two issue, but also other people. You know, yeah, extended family. Being yes. one of the goals of family. Yeah, that that there's a a real sense in which in which once the marriage um, has been made, once the covenant has been made, that covenant welcomes community. You know, they they become a unit that turns outside to the world and invites people in with hospitality, sharing love and grace, and creating a family that supports. Um, relationships within the church and, and outside of the church, as well as the the immediate family. Does that get us towards then a direct answer to the question from your reading and research? What is a good romantic love? I think so. I think it begins to, you know, I it? mean, St- yeah, state it. <laughs> state it. You want me to state it already? Yes. So soon you want me to state it. <laughs> what kids? She's like, but Dante and Beatrice, we were going but for Dante another. Dante and Beatrice, yeah, totally. I, I'm not ready to state that yet. No, I'm not going to do that. Mom. <laughs> no, I'm not. We can listen to, we can, we can hear from somebody else we first and come back to Dante to and Beatrice. We can come back to Dante and Beatrice. <laughs> Let's come back to Dante and Beatrice, but don't forget about them. So, I don't think we hardly could. Go ahead, Dad. So mom managed to follow C.S. Lewis with more C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. That was pretty impressive. I'm going to follow C.S. Lewis with Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach. So in other words, bring it down a ways. Who are they? Oh, that's the, the top. composer and the lyricist oh. for Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, cool. Yes. Okay. Sweet. I was thinking about um, what married love is, and Tevya and Golda just jumped immediately to mind, right? Do the, you love me? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> the great thing about Fiddler on the Roof is it's not deep. But it is profound. Yeah. And not only is it profound, it's ubiquitous. It's like written on the consciousness of every American that was drawing breath since 1965. That's what Broadway will do, right? That's what a broad theme and an earworm of a tune will do for you. Will do, yeah. (laughs) If you've got something important to say, boil it down to a Broadway lyric and get a great composer to write a tune for it. But I got to thinking about... Hmm. Uh, what romantic love is and the that great song from Fiddler on the Roof is 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 provocative if you think about it in answer to that question, right? Tevia Tevia says he says, Do you love me? And her first response is, Do I what? She doesn't even get it, right? With our daughters getting married and there's trouble in the town, and she says, You're upset, you want out, go inside, go lie down, maybe it's indigestion. <laughs> 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 and he goes but do you love me? And she says, do I love you? And then there's that, the famous um, refrain, right? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. I love how those two are in the same, oh, yeah. They're in the same, yeah, the same category. <laughs> given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Mm. Yeah. And uh, before the, the song, you know, gives its, its payoff moment. We get this little little exchange between them where they 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 let down the guard a little bit. She gets less irritated, and 
They remember their wedding day. He says, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. She says, I was shy. He says, I was nervous. She says, so was I, the great rising tune at that point. Yeah. And then he goes, but my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. So now I'm asking Golda, do you love me? She's not ready to give in yet. Give in yet. She goes, I'm your wife, which is actually saying more than she knows at that point, right? She's saying it as a, as an objection to the question, but she might also be answering the question. Mm -hmm. Do you love me? I'm your wife. He says, I know, but do you love me? Then she goes around again. Do I love him? Now she's talking to herself, right? Instead of to him, this is a soliloquy for 25 years. I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him for 25 years. My bed is his. Here's a great location of the erotic, passionate part of love. It's put at the, at the, the very, very end, almost as an afterthought. It's the last piece of data that she contemplates while she's answering his question. For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. For 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Mm. What a great answer. Oh, yeah. It's almost the, she's almost saying, I don't know. But if that, if, if 25 years of milking the cow together isn't love, I'm not sure that there's anything else Mm -hmm. that would do. Mm. Yeah. And then, so he concludes, he says, well, then you love me. And she says, well, I suppose I do. That's great. That's beautiful. I suppose I love you too. And then, (laughs) I mean, you guys all know the last, the last two lines, right? Everybody knows the last two lines. (laughs) Thank God for Sheldon Harnick. It doesn't change a thing. But even so, after 25 years, it's, it's nice, nice to know. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? Aye. So, I mean, I think what they say at the end is it doesn't change a thing. The fact that our relationship has grown to include whatever romantic love is, you know, as the last datum at the end of the list. That's good, though. That's good. What's important is. The 25 years of milking the cow and starving together. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, like I said, not particularly subtle, not particularly complex, but very, very profound. Especially if you think about it in the context of a show mm. where the relationship between romantic love and right. traditional marriage as a civil contract. Arranged marriage. Arranged marriage. Uh, where the the relationship between those two things is being used as a symbol of the clash between old and new, mm-hmm. the clash between the the parents and the children, the clash between generations. It's about love, and it's also about whether the young guys' kids have it right or the old guys have it right. And it would be mm. so easy to watch a song, a, a show like that on the surface and say, "Oh, that this is a story about Tevya and Golda figuring out." that it's time to change with the times. But I don't think that's really what they say. Mm-hmm. I think at the peak of this show and this song, they say the kids are figuring something out, but we'll add that to our, our cash and be just as, as happy as we, as we were. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also suggests that what the kids have isn't love actually yet. Not yet. Oh yeah. Not yet. It, yeah. It's the, it, it might be the spark of it. It might be the initial uh, the initiating of, yeah. of something that will turn into love, but that actually what love is, is for 25 years I've Milk washed your clothes. Yep. Yeah. Milk yeah. Because the they're, they're talking about Huddle, their, their daughter who, who likes this kid and Tevi has given his permission for them to get engaged without asking Golda. And so she freaks out and throws something at him and, right. and says, Golda, <laughs> I like him. He's a little crazy, but I like him. And he says, Huddle likes him. She loves him. And, but there's, it's very shallow what he's saying about them, right? They're, they may figure it out. There's a, they have a chance. They don't really know anything yet. Not like we do. And then they go into the song where they emphasize what they, what they know after a quarter of a century. And if that's not love, what is? I think Great it's question. interesting that the, the, there's a necessity for suffering in order for love to be genuine. You know, mm-hmm. that what they've done for 25 years has been bound together through the good times and the bad times. And there's been a lot of suffering, even in the daily chores, milking the cow, yep. burying the children, you know, those kinds of things. There's, there's been suffering, let alone the poverty that they right. endured together. And that that um, suffering together is 
a kind of love. Yeah. And I think that's, that's to the heart of that. And it, it really does kind of come together with, with what I was going to say was about here we Dante go. <laughs> so, you know, to go back to Dante, well, what Amazing. I was going to say is that it comes together with what you're saying about Van Auken. Too, yes, it does. Right? The love affair with God that he ends up describing is born out of suffering in a very, in a, in a much sharper way than the love affair between Golda and Tevye is born out of, you know, just history, but it's the right. same idea. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Yeah. But Dante though, but Dante, <laughs> but, but Dante, I don't, though. I don't want to jump back to Dante in, until everybody's had a chance to, to kind of chip in. If there's more. <laughs> well, yeah. I, Emily, what do you have that, what do you have that sings along with this tune? Huh? <laughs> well, it's not nearly as profound as Fiddler on the Roof, and I just feel like my point was made so much better. But uh, <laughs> I was um, thinking about the 2011 rom-com, Crazy Stupid Love. That's the oh, first thing that came yes. to mind for me. Speaking of stories from Hollywood that turn Hollywood love on its head, I think mm-hmm. that yeah. is one of them, even though it's a bit shallower and um uh, I don't know. Funny, I, but I watched it for the first time with you recently and thought, "A, how have I never seen this before?" Right. Being somewhat of a connoisseur of romantic comedies, and Steve Carell, and, and then Steve Carell, and then of course. B, this has remarkable depth. It's not just that well, it's that it's giving a truer answer than your average Hollywood movie. It's actually well told. I think. I think so too. What I choice. like about it so much is that whereas in Filler on the Roof, the suffering is born out of circumstances, and they faithfully serve each other in a really kind of ideal sort of way which is um, another reason why I struggle with (laughs) the Dante and Beatrice example there's an idealized version of romantic love that doesn't meet reality but in Crazy Stupid Love we meet Steve Carell's character Cal and uh, we find that he has just been told by his wife that she wants a divorce from him because she has been cheating on him with someone from her office and he's absolutely devastated but he's fallen into a rut he he's the typical um, middle-aged man on the verge of a midlife crisis. He's a, uh, he's a two-pleat dad. Right? Yep, his he dad, has gone normcore dad mode, full yeah. normcore, <laughs> and is completely boring, and he's lost touch with, with his wife. They don't really have a relationship anymore. And so when she shocks him with this affair and the fact that she wants a divorce, it drives him to go into a bar where he makes a fool of himself uh, getting drunk, but also meets the Ryan Gosling character, who's this young and handsome playboy about town uh, who who makes it his goal to uh, entice other women constantly all the time. He's just a womanizer. Different woman every night. And so when he sees Steve Carell, he they, they form a little acquaintanceship and Ryan Gosling proposes to turn Steve Carell into a guy who will get his wife back that he will be himself uh, attractive to her again and so he does this to him and he teaches him how to dress and how to talk and it has you know sort of middling effects (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but in the end the result is that a bunch of stuff goes horribly wrong. Horribly, horribly. His wife finds out that he, as a result, he ends up having affairs and his wife finds out and, and gets very upset with him. But also, which is dumb. Cause I'm sorry to interrupt you. That's dumb. Cause she, cause I mean, well, anyway. but it says something true, which is that she, at, at their core, they both still love each other. They're married. And she, yeah. They're right. married. And, like she calls him at one point and uh, for just an inane reason. And we get this idea that somehow they're still attached, even though they're trying to find pleasure in other places. Right. And at the very end of the movie, their young son graduating from eighth grade is the valedictorian and has to give a speech in front of his classmates. And he has been, he's a, a, a very uh, romantic young kid. Uh, he's in love with his he's babysitter. Got he's got it bad for, the babysitter, bad for the babysitter. But he's disillusioned at this point and gives a great speech to his classmates saying that he has grown up now uh, true love isn't real there's no such thing and now this is his entry into manhood because he's realized it's all it's, it's all fake it's a sham and his father steve carell interrupts him in, in the middle of it and gives this really beautiful speech which i actually have oh, yeah. from the script sweet let's go he says i met my soulmate when i was 15 years old and I have loved her with everything I have for every minute of every day, ever since she let me buy her that first mint chip ice cream. 
I have loved her through the birth of our three perfect children, and I have loved her even as I've hated her. Only married couples can truly understand that one. And I don't know what will uh, end up happening with us. I don't, Robbie. I'm sorry I can't give you that. But I promise you this, I will never stop trying. When you find the one, you never give up trying. And so I think there's something really profound about the fact that he doesn't it isn't a grand gesture in which he makes a promise that everything will be okay from here on out. But instead in that moment, he affirms his original vows and says that this was the one he revisits their past, just like in the fiddler on the roof song, they revisit the moment um, that started it all. And there's something about that, that uh, causes him to affirm the relationship as a whole. And even though he doesn't know what the future will hold, even though he can't promise that he'll be a reformed man, he's going to get it right from here on out. He can say right here in this moment, I'm going to try. And that's, I think the best that any loving relationship can do. Beautiful. I love that. The the other thing that I really like about that is that again, in, in mild contrast to the fiddler on the roof example, the suffering that he's in, he has brought on himself <laughs> throughout the whole story, right? He's, yep. he's kind of a dingbat and ends up in some bad situations. <laughs> and, and the, the self-knowledge that that engenders is part of what allows him to affirm his, his recommitment to the relationship. Yep, exactly. And that's, that's where it touches down in real life becomes something, something that isn't an ideal because it's not ideal. <laughs> Nothing about it's ideal, but it is good though, and and true because of that. I think. Well, and it affects the younger generation as a result. Ryan Gosling decides to commit to his new girlfriend, who ends up being Steve Carell's daughter, and once again, Cal, the main character, has to revisit mm-hmm. his own sins because uh, he doesn't think that Ryan Gosling is good enough for his daughter because he's a womanizer. <laughs> and yet, so was Steve Carell. Yeah, yeah. for most of the movie. For a minute, yeah. <laughs> go watch it. Don't watch it with your kids, but do go watch it. What a great movie. Well, believe it or not. <laughs> You're that, she's oh, going to do it. That <laughs> reminds you think of Dante, Dante and Beatrice. not like Dante and Beatrice. <laughs> yeah, I want to well, see a cage mind, match. Give I'm me totally a positive for Dante, for Dante, and then Emily gets to respond. <laughs> okay. And we'll okay, well, I think both. I'll be able to even convince Emily that there's a similarity between the love that she just described and... Um, the love that I'm going to describe that goes on here with Dante and Beatrice go, and with scores of other people or other characters that are drawn from them. So you know the story, right? Dante sees Beatrice from afar. He becomes deeply impressed by her and elevates her on this pedestal as the quintessential woman. On a pedestal. Um, Totally ideal, right? He carries the torch for her forever. And this is autobiographical for him too. Um, But their love is is never requited. um, She marries somebody else and dies of plague young. Um, but he carries a torch for her. Literally, she dies of the Black Plague very young. (laughs) She's never his wife. They never have a romantic relationship of any kind, but he carries this torch for her for the rest of his life. And she figures pretty prominently in his epic, The Divine Comedy, as the vehicle by which he comes to know himself and to see his sin and to repent and to come to know the love of God. And a Dante scholar, uh, well, I don't know if we can call him a scholar. He was, he was a, yeah, he was, a, he was a Dante scholar. I would say more of an aficionado though. Charles Williams, he, he took Dante's concept of chivalric love and he developed this entire theology of romantic love out of it and suggested that it's in romantic love because of the suffering that it produces, that lovers are forced out of that inward curve, out of, out of self-love and mm. brought closer to real love that is um, most perfect and divine love. And he sees the marriage covenant as a divine sacrament that actually prepares the soul for a love relationship with God. So if you've ever read the comedy, um, you know that in, I think it's in the, the second circle, there's the lustful. And Dante encounters these two shades, Paolo and Francesca whose passion for each other actually caused them to violate the law of God and each other. And sent, it sent them to their graves because the husband walks in and that's the end for them, right? And it's the story um, in the telling. It's full of pathos. And Dante's really moved by it, listening to these shades talk about their, their past and their experience. But Virgil goads Dante, um, the character, as to whether or not he actually ought to be moved. He says, um, who are they loving? Each other. Not of true love lives for the good of the other, Right. 
um, Paolo and Francesca, they're rash and they're passionate. And frankly, they don't love each other. They love themselves. They're in it for themselves. And, and their rash, passionate love actually causes each the other's damnation. So real love, Dante says, ought to do quite the opposite. It ought to elevate the beloved, not not in the way that he elevated Beatrice, but that in the way that Beatrice elevated him by inspiring him to see himself mm. and to become a better kind of man through repentance and baptism and, you know, um, yeah, which regeneracy. Is, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So really, God is an, a necessary... He's a necessary part of the equation in the best kind of romantic love. And th- through coming to see your sin and repenting, which is a necessity in any kind of a marriage relationship, we are ennobled. And the love itself, um, the love itself actually does its work on us. It grows in us, like, like you were saying in the Fiddler in the Roof story, um, as we suffer together. Mm. Um, and it, it, Okay, so you're probably going to throw stones at me, but I've got one more thing to say. Are you moving moving books? No, no, it's not a book. You okay. kids used to sing this song. Remember when you used to sing in the evenings um, in the living room? And I think Ian, you and Megan sang this song together. And it was a Brooke Fraser song, Who Are We Fooling? Oh, yeah. You oh, remember yeah. this song? Yeah, it's beautiful. just totally a part and parcel of what we're talking about here. Um, and the, the lyrics go like this. We tried and tried to loosen the knots, thinking once we're untangled, we'll be better off. But it's these failures and faults that hold us together. Better or worse, but what else can we do? When better or worse, I'm tethered to you. If it's not either of us, tell me who are we fooling? This beautiful tangle that's bruising us blue is the beautiful knot that we just can't undo. Together we're one, but apart, tell me who are we fooling? Because real love is hard love. It's all we have. It's a breakneck train wreck. It's all we have. So we're back here again, turning away from the edge of the end, arm in arm, better or worse, but what else can we do? When better or worse, I'm tethered to you. If it's not either of us, tell me, who are we fooling? This beautiful tangle that's bruising us blue is the beautiful knot that we just can't undo. If it's not either of us, tell me, who are we fooling? Together we're one, but apart, tell me, who are we fooling? Just the idea that the one flesh relationship, that marriage binds us together and bruises us deeply, but it's this beautiful knot. And after we've suffered it, it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness in those who've been trained by it. Hmm. Beautiful. I can tell by Emily's face, though, that she's not about the Dante Beatrice image still. Oh, I have heard... I have heard your mother speak at length on this, and I think it's beautiful, and I can intellectually assent to everything that she says. I just like to be the person, you know, for the sake of balance, who sits on the other side of the fence and says, yeah, but this doesn't actually apply to marriage, because give me a real woman with real flaws. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I see that. I can totally, I can hear you there, that she is ideal, and she remains ideal because they aren't married. Exactly. Right? That if well, he and had, because she's dead. Of yeah, if yeah, he had plague. actually, <laughs> if, actually um, if it had been a requited love, then they would have seen each other's warts over time, right? Exactly. And boobos. <laughs> and boobos. <laughs> was that a funny so bad? Reference? That was awesome. Uh, point taken. <laughs> well, isn't the point, though, that, I mean, uh, it's what you just said, Missy. The point is that Beatrice isn't real. That's kind of the... It is. It's the thing that draws Dante to heaven. But the truth is, the the means, the vehicle um, that she becomes is because she forces him through their relationship, albeit a relationship that's in the spiritual realm. She forces him to look at himself and, and see his sin. Right. Which is what does happen in the best kind of marriage relationship. It's the effect that's real. Not yeah. The, not the um, the vehicle necessarily. Of right. course. Of course. That's fair enough. That's fair enough for sure. Love being something that you do, romantic love being something that you do and produce and are held to a standard of, or um, love being something that's done to you. And I think the Dante example reminds me of that, that, that way of looking at it, that Dante is not the lover so much as he is the the one who benefits from this thing, this romantic love, whatever it is, he's the receiver in a way, uh, because he's the one who's transformed. He's the one who gains a status that he didn't have before. You know, he's the one whom Beatrice 
draws along to something new. And I got to thinking that the, the marriage between Odysseus and Penelope in Homer has that flavor to it as well. And I think it's fun to think about Odysseus's marriage as a romantic one because of the cognitive dissonance that we modern Western readers always confront when we think about Odysseus as a husband and Penelope as a wife, especially when the epithet faithful is right. used to describe him. Uh, is used right. of a dirty cheater, right? <laughs> yeah, Shacked up with, with a goddess we on see, an island for yeah, years. We find him on Calypso's <laughs> Island in dalliance after dalliance, right? And at the... But but also what he's, he's doing in the, dallying, of, get it? <laughs> in the midst of dilly dallying, what he's doing is longing for her home, right? He's crying to go home to his faithful wife, Penelope. That's where his heart is, even if his body, so to speak, is somewhere else. He's in other places. And oh I just think goodness. it's so interesting. Oh. I mean, as a, as a teacher of young people and, you know, yeah. yeah. Let's just go ahead and go all the way. As the teacher of young Christian readers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's it's really fun to confront them with idea of Odysseus's marriage, and have them wrestle with what can Homer possibly mean, or maybe more to the point, what is love? If Odysseus and Penelope have it, mm-hmm. does it yeah. is it something that you that you perform and something that you do perfectly? Or is it something, something else altogether? And I got to thinking about the, um, the fact that Odysseus is, I got to thinking about the effect that it has on Odysseus's identity and Odysseus's self-concept that Penelope is waiting, that she, um, that she never moves. In fact, in book one, she's described as a pillar in his house who never budges and the fact that everything she does with respect to Odysseus and the action of the story is negative. She is, she's defined by inertia, right? I mean, what does she do? She, she um, declines to finish the burial shroud, right? She weaves yep. backwards. She declines to move the marriage bed. She declines proposal after proposal of marriage from the suitors. In fact, she draws her identity and the story gives her an identity, not because of her own stratagems for defeating the suitors or taking over the throne or finding another king or anything like that. She draws her identity from Odysseus and the hope of his homecoming, right? right. Over which she has no, no control. In other words, she says, I am what Odysseus does for me which is returns to take his throne and restore my family and restore Ithaca. And in a sense, if I think about Penelope that way, I also think about Odysseus that way, regardless of what he's actually doing on Calypso's Island, he receives his identity from what Penelope is doing in his behalf. Hmm. I am essentially says, I am what you do in my behalf because you are faithful and unmoving. Then I am the rightful king of Ithaca, and I am a happy husband. And there's a, a spin on love and even married love. If you look at Odysseus and Penelope this way, that I think is pretty powerful that we participate in love by receiving it and we gain identity by accepting it uh, based on, based on the work of another. And that's really the only way that Odysseus and Penelope can be understood, right? When they come back and they're reunited and the marriage bed is unmoved well, it would have been hard to move it. it well, you had to cut it down, right? But <laughs> it has to be because she hasn't moved. It has to be right. because for his sake, she has remained. And the fact that Ithaca is restored uh, is because she waited for him to come home and he acted in her behalf too. So what is, what's, Dad, answer the, quest, the question directly. What's a good love from the perspective of your pair of examples? To trust in something over which you have no control. Maybe that's not the whole definition, but that's Homer might inject that into the conversation. So, okay. And I want to ask Emily the same question to, to, to answer that directly. But in between though, I'm going to turn to Megan and I'm going to say, Megan, what do you think about all of this? You were not called upon to prepare or to, to participate today, but that doesn't mean you don't have <laughs> thoughts. What are you thinking? What am I thinking? Well, I'm thinking yeah. on 
I've, I have read the Odyssey like two or three times, and I have taught it more than once, and I still hadn't thought about the givenness of of Odysseus and Penelope's identity in like that as a way of describing the power of their marriage image that's shot throughout that whole book is is still new to me. So I was just pondering how no matter how many times you read a classic like that, there's still more. Super true and beautiful. So, okay, Emily, it, what is the, what is the, what is your answer, your direct answer <laughs> to the question? Well, it's funny that your dad chose the Odyssey because I chose the modernist Odyssey Ulysses oh, no way. by oh, James Oh, Joyce. nice. <laughs> um, but in this story, although the Penelope figure Molly stays home all day, she is also engaging in an affair all day long as well. And Leopold, the Odysseus figure, does as well. As he wanders about the city, it takes place over the course of one day and um, is full of utter mundanities and grotesqueness uh, as, as these two figures just go about living their life over the course of a regular day. And to mirror the Odyssey... Uh, Leopold, the husband, leaves the house and wanders about the city of Dublin over the course of the day. And I'll, I'll cut it short and won't give away <laughs> won't give away all the gritty details. But he does eventually come home. Uh, there's a point in the day, even while he's um, conducting an affair, he's writing love letters to a woman that isn't his wife. He something that he sees uh, recalls a memory from early in his relationship with his wife. And uh, these kind of siren calls eventually do lead him to wander back home at the end of the day. And when he comes home, he finds evidence of his wife's lover and knows what she was doing with herself over the course of the day. But he asks her to uh, have tea with him and climbs into bed anyway, uh, even though he knows and she knows he knows. And she's struck by that fact. And the novel ends with this and I'm going to read it even though it's going to be strange because it's James Joyce and uh, it's written in the in the modernist uh, style but uh, this is Molly thinking to herself she says when I put the rose in my hair like the Andalusian girls used or shall I wear red yes and how he kissed me under the Moorish wall she's remembering uh, how they met as well Uh, he kissed me under the Moorish wall and I thought well as him as another and then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes. And then he asked me, would I, yes, to say yes, my mountain flower. And first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes. And his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. And that's the, the last line of the book is, yes, I will, yes, I will, yes. Just constant. And, and it continues, actually. The refrain starts before then. She just starts repeating the word, yes over and again and there's something about his return home and the memory that they share of of their early life together that calls out an affirmation from her so i I think it's kind of ultimately strangely enough ends up saying the same thing although she is not morally fixed she her eyes wander over the course of the story she is physically fixed in their house over the course of the day and it calls him home, and his return home causes her to affirm him hmm. and his personhood. Wow. And so I do think, and so... Well, it sounds like it, it affirms her too. Like her identity is renewed there in the end as she remembers who she is in light of him. Right, and he, he comes, even though she knows that he shouldn't, uh, even though he knows that she's she's been in the wrong, that act on his part does cause her to return to her former uh, feelings. So I guess it's, it, it's sort of from the other side. It's that love for them is an exchange of affirmation of identity. Hmm. So it sounds like we have a consensus. Well, let's ask Ian how he would say, Ian, we've been giving you our answers. Now you have to sum them all up in one yeah, pithy. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, it seems like there's a consensus between the modern and, and, classic examples, which is kind of astonishing to me. I mean, what I anticipated hearing from this particular episode was a litany of poor examples of paltry, shallow, insignificant love that were being force-fed as modernists, and then a, a shining example of real true love from some classic works. And instead, we've managed to find 
beautiful, articulate, true expressions of romantic love from all times and places, which, as mom said in the beginning, is kind of astonishing. That mm-hmm. is. I wonder if part of that is because the five of us aren't interested in, in shallow, trotting out the <laughs> terrible ones, yeah. which may that be true, be. <laughs> but it's not the case that good ones don't exist. Right. Or that they're not popular. We've discovered that. That's the other thing. It's yeah. not these, the people that we I mentioned mean, writing modern works are not laboring in obscurity. Fiddler on the Roof is one of the most popular Broadway shows ever written. Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe that's why. And I, th- I think you're, I think your point is well taken. That's encouraging yeah. to, to contemplate the fact that, the idea of a good love in all of its facets is as popular now as ever. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's funny that we've landed on on one of the, th- the things a good love does, maybe not its definition, but one of the things that it does is grants identity, given identity, or maybe we should say received identity um, to the lover. And it makes confusions like the one that you described in A Severe Mercy uh, thorny, because absent the the divine love absent what Lewis would call agape, right? <laughs> agape. Absent yeah, that, you gotta love the names us um, all. Right? Absent that, we're actually noticing something true about love when we when we idolize it because we're turning to it for precisely what one ought to turn to love for salvation, right? For definition, for a word, for a word from outside that tells you who and what manner of creature you are. And the only difference really between a good human romantic love and the ultimate divine love is that a good human romantic one acknowledges the presence of the ultimate divine one and reflects it. Well, it seems like otherwise human love just let loose uh, to do what it will ends up devouring the other. Well, Mm -hmm. probably because we're incapable of doing it perfectly. Right. Yeah. That we need a perfect lover because we can't be one ourselves. Right. I didn't necessarily mean that. Well, I think, don't you think it's because, don't you think it's because that, that power to name, I, I think that a lot of people look for a romantic love relationship because they're looking for a name and they um, hope to find it there. But ultimately, ultimately it can't deliver. Agreed. I think that's kind of what I was saying. But what, but the point I was trying to make is that th- by noticing that that's one of the things love does, they're not wrong. Love does do that, but the human the human love that they that they are searching for can't do it all the way, can't do it right. completely, because it's it's not a god. Right, right. And none of us disagree it, on that it, on that no. front. But it it is easy to confuse with that. I can see why people do confuse it because it is uh, an image of God right. in His love for right. us. So it, I can see why it becomes an idol in so many situations like the one that Sheldon discusses in his Absolutely. book. Well, goodness, you guys, that was wonderful. Thank mm-hmm. you for your thoughts. That was really great. We will, um, we will go back to study and go back to read and keep your eyes open as you walk around the world. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the next edition of Bibliophiles. Thank you listeners for joining us. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. And just like that, our tour through the great questions comes to a close. Join us next week for one last episode, where we take a retrospective look at where we've been and make some final observations on the nature and purpose of the great conversation. Then we'll make a special announcement about where you can expect bibliophiles to go from here. Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading.